Thanks for joining us for another episode of Gab and Jules Meets. Um, Jules, we're going to delve into the business and sponsorship side of the game because I have a lot of questions about why sponsors, often sponsors I've never heard of, <laughs> get involved. Yes, I agree with you. I've often wondered the same thing. And today we're joined by a man who spent his life yeah. doing exactly that, cutting checks for sporting events. So my name is uh, Ricardo Fort, and I, I work in uh, sports marketing. As a, I'm a marketer, and I love sports marketing. I have worked for many years in big uh, advertisers, big sponsors like Visa and Coca-Cola. Uh, today, I work as a consultant helping other brands to make sense of the commercial dealings of sports. Okay, I'm going to start with the big one. And you may have more historical context on this. To me, it's one of the biggest things that I think of when I think of Coca-Cola. Coca-Cola has sponsored the World Cup for many, many years. You can tell me how many. And I think it's one of the biggest, longest partnerships out there. And I can never understand Coca-Cola as a brand is a bigger brand than FIFA. I don't know if it's a bigger brand in the World Cup. We can debate that. But I always felt Coca-Cola is inelastic, right? If everybody knows what it is, people who like it, drink it. People who don't like it, drink something else. Can you explain why Coca-Cola chose all those years, and you were a part of the decision-making process, why they chose to say, everybody knows us, but we're still going to make this, I assume, a big financial commitment to FIFA and to the World Cup. Coca-Cola has been involved with the FIFA World Cup since um, 1958, before the global sponsorship uh, existed. And then when FIFA brought it all together and launched a global sponsorship model uh, into, in 1976, uh, Coke and Adidas were the first two companies to sign up for it. Uh, the the reason why companies like Coke or companies like uh, you know other sponsors are doing this for so long, in particular well known brands like Coke, is is because you know every every three four years there is a new generation that you need to 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 convince that that's the thing that they should drink, eat, use, whatever it is. Um, because our memories you now we are at a certain age group that we remember many World Cups, we remember many Coca Cola stories. But for a you know, 13, 14, 15 year old boy or girl, that's their first. And uh, and every workup, there there are stories that you need to tell to make sure that in the next you know, 10, 15, 20 years, uh, those people uh, will be loyal to the brand. Uh, and the other the other thing which is uh, important is just because it's such an important cultural reference in our lives. So if you like football. You remember exactly what you're doing every four years because the World Cup is a is a you know it's a pinpoint in your life and you remember. So you want to be part of that. You want to be part of uh, uh, you know memories and and to become culturally relevant, you have to be involved with this kind of things with the Olympic Games, with the World Cup, and so on and so forth. So these are the reasons why you know big companies like like Coke uh, are involved and keep their involvement for so long. This is almost like a way to make sure that. You know, the next generation, people who are 14, 15, maybe even younger, they might see Coke around them in their daily lives, but they don't necessarily associate it with with the World Cup unless you sponsor it. It may not be relevant to them. It may not be part of their daily experience. And this is why a big brand that we think of as very established, because you're suggesting big brands could go away very quickly if they don't continue promoting themselves is that is that what you're suggesting there's a shelf yeah, life no, I, no, ab- absolutely if you if you just rely on your history on on the people that are currently consuming your product you know chances are you're going to be relevant very soon so coke is not talking to you know to, to kids or to young teenagers because I mean, they are not allowed to do this but but the idea that you're going to tell stories through advertising events and promotions uh every four years it's uh, you know it's it, it's important for them, and they do it in, in many other ways. I mean, there no the FIFA World Cup is is uh, is one of them, um, but but it's it's important to keep keep refreshing the stories that you tell, and also 
to be involved with big things because otherwise you 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 people can forget you very easily yeah i think there's a degree of the biggest brand wants to be associated with the biggest event in a way right mm -hmm. it, it must be a bit like that because it shows that you are one of the leading brands i've got two questions for you the first one is and i think you had left cook by that moment when Cristiano, you remember when he was going to do his press conference and the Coke bottle was there and he said, don't drink, just drink water, whatever. Mm -hmm. Is that, is that, does that hurt you as a brand? And is, is that your nightmare as a, you know, as a chief marketing officer for a brand like Coke, for example? And my second question is, did you ever think at some point that maybe going with an individual player as a sponsorship, like let's say Messi, for example, and kind of leaving the World Cup and say, you know what, we've done great with FIFA and the World Cup and that was great. But maybe it's actually maybe more powerful to be the sponsor for you know, Messi, for example. Or for you, there's still no, no competition between a huge competition like the World Cup and one individual athlete, albeit a superstar like Messi. Hmm. Well, it is... so. The honor Ronaldo thing first. Um, it is annoying, but it doesn't it doesn't hurt as much as most people think it hurts. Okay. Because the reality is the only the only part of this whole story that is wrong is Ronaldo. Because he did something <laughs> which was he knew he couldn't do it. I mean, he's very smart, he's very well informed. He knows he cannot criticize a sponsor of the tournament the way yeah. he did. So it, it, it looks unprofessional for him. Um And yeah, of course, if you're working for a company and you're being attacked by a you know a big name like like him, I mean, there's a lot of meetings and you know people trying to figure out how to respond to that. Um, and I think that what they did was listen. We offer every sort of drink. We saw soft drinks, juices, water, milk. What? So you you drink whatever you want, including the water that you're drinking, which is from Coke. So it, <laughs> I think they came back uh, very very nicely. Um, Uh, going to the, the second question, the thing is, the, it is really hard to develop something that everybody around the world likes. So the World Cup, uh, a national team, a player, a league, you name it. It's, it's impossible because people consume football in different ways. Yeah. So if you are in, in a certain region of the world, the way you access football is different from some other region. So I'll give you a couple of examples. Uh, the U.S. is changing, Australia is changing, but in, in, if you if you go back a couple of, no, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, the U.S. and Australia consumed football primarily through you know, uh, playing. So kids playing, grassroots events and tournaments for younger kids. So that was football for them. Yeah. Uh, if you go to the Middle East, Africa, you know, Middle East you know, and Asia, they are obsessed with celebrities in everything, including football. So if you're using Messi or Ronaldo in the Middle East, I mean, this is fantastic. It's the best thing you can get, right? Yeah. Uh, in Africa, they are very focused on the teams, on the clubs. Uh, so, and of course, in Europe, which is a, you know, a, 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 it's a, a more established, it's an older culture of football. There's a lot of attachment to clubs and to, you know, to local clubs. and to. So if you are a global brand and you're trying to find a way to talk to everyone, You, you have to have a little bit of everything. Of course, the World Cup is big, but you, know, you cannot ignore the players. You cannot ignore. So if you look at what uh, Coke has done in the past, they have the World Cup. They have you know, some regional competitions. Now they have uh, Libertadores. They have uh, Euro. Uh, and they have deals with players. They have deals with clubs. And they, and they use it in a way that is the right thing to say to everyone as much as you can do it. I want to go back to, since you brought up Cristiano, I, I want to use the opportunity. I think we've had sort of, as sports fans, we've lived through this unique period where we have, and still have, uh, you know, two legitimate greatest of all time GOAT candidates in Cristiano and Messi. And while personally, I don't have a problem being a fan of both and liking both with the pros and the cons of each, in a lot of the world, it's very polarizing, especially Uh, as we've seen recently, you know, we were obviously in in uh, in the Gulf for the World Cup and so on. Sometimes people are fans of one and so they hate the other and so on. And I, I, I thought back to, I don't know if this is still the case, but in Scotland, for example, you have two massive rival teams, Celtic and Rangers. And for many years, maybe they still do, I don't know, they had the same shirt sponsor. 
because whatever company says, I have to sponsor both teams and be associated with both because otherwise this is going to hurt me. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? When this Cristiano Messi dynamic, where they're so big, but they're inevitably seen as rivals, as at odds of each other, does that sometimes scare brands away saying, I can't sponsor this one guy unless I sponsor the other guy too? Not very often. Uh, brands don't don't think about in in these terms because the you know if, if you look at just the population of that you want to impact with your work, the number of people that are so crazy for one player or one team and against something else is, is a small part of it. So you know, in general, people will like it, people will, will enjoy it, people will appreciate it if the work is good. Uh, so no, um, it's it's very rare for companies to think about if I don't sponsor both, uh, that's going to be bad for my brand. Of course, there there are some exceptions, right? So if you um, if you try to run a Messi campaign in Portugal or a, a Ronaldo campaign in Argentina, chances are you're going to have some problems. Uh, <laughs> there there are some places in in Brazil. So I'm Brazilian. So if there are some places in Brazil, like the south of Brazil in 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 Porto Alegre, where they have uh, Inter and Grêmio, I mean these are the, the, the very strong feelings uh, for each of the clubs, and and they they are very polarizing. So the the, the shirt sponsor used to be the same, um, but this is very rare. Uh, in other in other places, brands don't think um, in in these terms. But for example, Ricardo, there was no way that Nike would have wanted to sponsor both Messi and Cristiano Ronaldo? Would, would it have been counterproductive for them to have the biggest star? Would it be better for them to just have one and you choose which one you want? In basketball, for example, in the NBA, it happens a lot that the superstars wear the same, I mean, the same shoe or the same the same sneaker or at least the same, the same brand of them. In football, certainly with Messi and Cristiano, if you had been the head of, let's say, Nike or Adidas marketing, whatever, would you have considered maybe going for the two, or do you think it was impossible? They had to have, each of them had to have the, the big kind of like, you know, shoemaker or... You know, oh, no, no. They, I mean, I would love to have both. And I think both Nike and Adidas would have loved to have both. Really? Because, oh, yeah. I mean, the, the, the more you can have, the better. It's just not financially, it's not, it's not feasible in most of the cases because, you know, and, and in, in players' contract, it, it comes all the way back to relationships and how early you get there and how early you recruit and sign the player. Um, so I, I, I bet, you know, Puma, Adidas, Nike, they would love to have as many players as they, as, you know, as they can. All right. You mentioned the financial side of it. And I was speaking to my, to my boss today, who's very skeptical about sponsorships and in general. And I remember back to, to when I studied this sort of things that, there are formulas, there is market data and so on that people use to, or brands use to go and get some kind of return. And so they decide, okay, we, we have a budget, we can go to this amount. Beyond that, it's not worth it. And I remember having other people who come from sort of hard, harder, harder math backgrounds, let's say, saying, this is all fuzzy math, this is all fuzzy stuff, you're talking about consumer behavior, it can't be predicted. Um, you're going to tell me that it actually probably can be predicted with startling accuracy. Is that true? <laughs> well, you have to qualify the answer first, because if, first of all, it can be predicted and it can be uh, quantified. You know, if you have the information, if you do your homework, if you do what you have to do. So I was lucky to work in big companies. They have a lot of resources and they allow me to do things to, to measure all of this. So uh, I can only speak about the companies that I work for. And if you do the work right, then it's great. You're going to see the returns. So there are a lot of sponsorship work that would never pay back because they are, they are, these are deals that are signed for reasons that make no sense, right? The CEO of the company likes to play golf. Then the company sponsors a lot of golf. They like to play you no know, tennis and then it's sponsored. <laughs> so that that kind of thing still happens. The good companies are not doing that anymore. The good companies, they are they, I in my job, I had to prove to my bosses that in spending, you know, a couple of hundred million dollars in a sponsorship was better than buying a factory 
um, hiring a thousand people. So I, I'm, I was competing with other needs of the business, not only with marketing. So I had to have the, the homework done very well. So I'll give you, I'll give you the, 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 in general, what I, I've seen was if you do, a, if you do a sponsorship right, you are going to get returns that are, are far better than the alternative, which is regular marketing. So every time that a bit that a brand does a workup Olympic, uh, you know, Champions League campaign, the results are better than when they do something else. And this is what I've seen in different categories in, in my life working for these companies and after that as well. Uh, how you measure is another conversation because some companies have to be measured differently. So for a company like Visa that has a lot of data, what they do is they, they sponsor because um, they want they want people to uh, use the cards more often because every time that you use your card, they make money. And they want the banks that issue the cards to issue more cards because their business is basically a lot of people using a lot of cards. So they use the sponsorships to help the banks to develop work, to sell more, to issue more cards and to convince the people on the other side to, to use their cards more often. So it works really, really well. And they have, they have tons of data to, 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 to prove it. On Coke is different because Coke has, you have, you know, a, a retailer, a supermarket that is selling the product. So what they do is, uh, they look uh, look back to you know many many Olympics, many many World Cups, and you see how the countries, how the these places behave when you do a program, a, a campaign, and advertising talking about the World Cup, and when you compare that with when they don't, the results are much better for when there is a sporting event. So this is why they they continue, and, and the, the CFOs are the toughest judges that you can get. They, they will not give you money to sign contracts unless you're demonstrating the results. And, you know, it, it, is, it is working for a lot of people. Uh, a part of my job today is to work with people that don't know how to do it because, you know, <laughs> it's very, exactly. often, very, very often they, they have the wrong way of doing it. So that's why we have you on. And because I, you answered the question a little bit about Visa because specifically, even more so than Coke, I, I'm going to confess, I, Every, you know, I have several credit cards um, in my wallet or really in my phone these days. And I don't really pay attention to whether it's a Visa or a MasterCard because every card I have, whether it's Visa or MasterCard, they all have different terms because it's the banks that that set the terms, um, at least from the consumer angle. Uh, but from what you're telling me, essentially, these this Visa advertisement, for example, a ends up helping Visa's competitor as well because it just gets more people to use the credit card, whatever that is. But it's really aimed at banks to show the ubiquity of Visa and say, hey, maybe if we decide whether with our bank, when we issue our card, we go Visa or MasterCard, let's lean Visa this time or let's lean MasterCard if they for whatever they sponsor. It, it, did, am I understanding this correctly? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Every bank, because you have a relationship with the bank and the bank gives you the credit card or offers you the credit card. Right. So it's unlikely that you're going to change banks to get a different brand of credit card. You need to be really passionate for that brand to say, oh, I'm going to close my account with, you know, Santander and I'm going to open an account with some other bank. So you, you don't, you don't do this kind of thing. So part of the work that they, they, the MasterCard and Visa, they, they have is to go to the bank and to say, Bank, you have you know a portfolio of cards, a 50-50 MasterCard and Visa. I'm going to give you the workup for you to promote. And in return, you're going to issue more cards, Visa, than America, the MasterCard. And that, that, that's a lot of business for them. So the, the model works like that uh, um, no, as well. You've been in this game a long time. Uh, what would you say as... What have you seen? What was the biggest difference that you've seen maybe from when you started to now in terms of marketing in sports or marketing in football, if you want, because maybe marketing in sports is a bit too too wide. But in football, have you seen something in the last 10, 15, 20 years, whatever, that you saw, okay, right, this is maybe an evolution that I didn't see coming. Maybe this is the right evolution, the logical one. Is there something that surprised you in the way that marketing sports has evolved or not evolved? Did you think that it would be more advanced than it is now? How, how would you assess the, the evolution of marketing in sports for the last 
20 years or so. Okay. So uh, the to talk about the progress of, of sponsorships, you have to, to say where, because the, there are still places today that do uh, sports marketing sponsorships like, you know, uh, the UK, uh, France, or the United States were doing 20 years ago. So it's the, the progress is not distributed fairly. Uh, so... <laughs> If you, if you look at if you look at the developed countries, Western Europe, North America, Japan, uh, there was a lot of investment to to show the brand, you know, the visibility of the brand. Um, and, and today, these countries are not doing as much on this area. So, uh, when a brand sponsors, they are looking for you know what, what's the content that I can get? Can I produce a film? Can I? Uh, can I do a documentary with you? Can I have the the, the players, the athletes uh, uh, engaging with my fans on social media? So you're looking a lot more for content. Um, uh, in, in other places, you know, 20 years ago in the United States or England or Italy, etc., uh, that was that was not the case. That was not happening. But if you go to if you go to you know someplace in in Asia, in Latin America, etc. You know they are still selling visibility. So the offer that a club gives to the no, to what a club can offer to the sponsor is basically, oh, this is my shirt, this is my sleeve. So it still it still happens in a lot of, a lot of places. So, but developed countries don't 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 do this anymore or do do less of that. Um, technology, of course, has a huge impact in sponsorships. So a lot of companies are paying a lot of money to get access to data. Um, there's a di many different categories that are buying data, how the players move, how the results of the matches are, etc. To sell this to you know, betting companies or tracking devices companies, all of that. So uh, today, sponsorships are used for um, uh, for for the, because of the data, because of the content that you are acquiring, and then there's a bunch of other uses of sponsorships that some companies are doing today to tell you know, sustainability stories. Uh, 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 equity, diversity stories. So, you know, if you think about the growth of women's football in the last few years, there's a lot of that, which is not the company thinks that women's football is great or the company thinks that women's football has the visibility or, or is going to have a return on their investment, which is greater than other alternatives. They are doing this because they think is the right thing to do. They want to invest in women's as much as they invest in men's sports. So uh, um, this is a, a sponsorship that is driven by the need to tell a story about uh, gender uh, uh, equity. So, so there's all these different things that didn't exist 20 years ago. And today is you know, it's everyday work for sponsorship uh, people. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Gab. Just go to Indeed.com slash Gab right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Gab. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need indeed. Um, I want to take you back uh, a little bit to, um, to to something you said earlier about how certain they use the term good companies and other companies might use slightly less rooted uh, things, maybe rooted in fandom. Um, I mean, I think it's an open secret. The president of Rwanda, Paul Kagame is a massive Arsenal fan. You can go back 15 years and before he was president of Rwanda and he's tweeting about Arsenal. I think he probably <laughs> still does, right? And now Arsenal, of course, has have a big visit Rwanda shirt sponsorship. Uh, I'm not going to ask you to assess whether that's worth it or not or whatever else. But there does seem to be an association where 
he's out of politicians, he's probably the most famous Arsenal fan in the world, mm. right? Uh, uh, as a result. Um, equally at the same time, if you watch, for those who watched the, the Champions League this week, if you watched Interplay, you'll notice that they did not have a shirt sponsor. Um, Roma also, it said SPQR, which is a famous, obviously Roman uh, saying going back to Roman times, but that's not a shirt sponsor. It's because the shirt sponsor that they had uh, stopped paying them, reneged on their contracts, according to what the clubs are saying. And so they're just fully blank. Um, does this kind of thing surprise you? Is is this a, when you see things like this happening sort of during a season, is this what you're talking about when sometimes there's non-purely financial reasons for uh, a sponsorship? Well, there, there are different problems there. So one, so the, in the Arsenal case, I think Arsenal is doing nothing wrong. If the motivation to sponsor of a government is because the president likes the club, this is clearly wrong. And this is, you no, know, the country needs to have some you know, checks and balance to make sure that that doesn't happen, right? Happens in companies, happens in, happens in countries, happens in a lot of places, but it, the motivation is wrong. Now, Arsenal is there to say, you know, yeah, sure. I'll, I'll say you, I'll say you my sleeve. That's okay. Um, the, the other case is different. The other case is the, the, Clubs didn't do the due diligence, didn't do their homework before signing a sponsorship and, and brought in a partner that, ha- that has higher risk of defaulting on payments or the industry was not regulated. And you see this, for example, now in betting, this is very common. In, in, in tokens, fan tokens, this is very common. So these are, you know, if you do it, due diligence, before background checks, you know, you, you do if you do your homework well, at least you can make a decision that is more informed. So it's unlikely that Inter will look at their partners and say, "Oh, you know, these guys will never they they they, they will stop paying me at some point or Roma, whatever." Uh, but they will at least say, "You know, there is a higher risk of signing with this brand than I would have signing with uh, Fiat, for example, and uh, I may get less money from Fiat." But at least I can sleep in peace. So they don't do this. And this is why you find some clubs in trouble uh, during the season. You talked about betting, uh, Ricardo. And I saw on your t- one of the tweets that you sent not that long ago about mm-hmm. betting and that you said it should be treated like tobacco was at some point. In the sense that, because you think it's, 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 an, it's a negative sponsor for sports. I mean, football is heavily involved on on shirts, in the stadium everywhere. It's obviously, uh, you they promote their brands to encourage mm-hmm. people to go and bet, which again, not really sure that's the idea here, or is, that is a good thing. Do you think that football club, especially, have gone a bit too far now with the betting industry? I mean, sorry, if I, before, if I just piggyback on that for those who don't have the history of, of tobacco advertising in, in sport, most famous case, perhaps those old enough will remember in Formula One, mm. where certain countries had banned tobacco companies from sponsoring cars. And so when they raced in those countries, it would just be a blank space. <laughs> but we saw that very recently, right? Um, what was it? Was it, was it West Ham that we saw? Yeah. Uh, was, yeah. I think it was West Ham in France. You can't have an advertisement. I mean, as you know, Ricardo, you can't, because of the loi van, you can't have a shirt sponsor that is alcohol, for example. Right. So if you play in that country, then you shirt sponsor just disappears. Mm. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So there, there are two different angles on on the betting, alcohol, tobacco thing. And one is what's legal, and the other one is how I feel about this these segments, right? So I think that betting in general is 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 a dangerous industry just because it incentivizes habits that can be harmful for you know people that are spending more money than they can. It can be addictive, etc. So. In my opinion is if I can prevent my daughters to bet, I will. But if as long as it's legal, you know that that's okay. The challenge in some places in uh, in Europe, it's you know it hasn't been regulated. So the countries realize later that well, if you if we let this window open, we lose control of the you know of what can and cannot be done. So then Spain and Italy and now the UK, all of them you know, put or are putting regulations to, to limit, to prevent, to control. Um, but I think it's, it's just inevitable that the industry will continue to be part of, of football. 
what what it, what bothers me is just the, this hypocrisy of saying, "Oh no, this is for fan engagement." I mean, yeah, of course, a fan that bets is more engaged, but you cannot justify recruiting, you know, uh, teenagers and young adults to to spend their you know their hard earned money on betting because they I mean, there are other ways to engage people that doesn't make them you know lose their money. That's my that's my personal personal view on that. Well, yeah. it, it's interesting. I mean, those who watch the Premier League, we, we we live in England, we watch a lot of Premier League. You see a lot of shirt sponsors and a lot of ads for Chinese betting companies. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I often, Chinese betting companies that aren't available, you can't open an account with them here in the UK. No. Um, but there's so many restrictions on advertising for betting companies in China that it's cheaper for them to go and buy uh, a shirt sponsorship, like, you know, these names we've never heard of, like Man Bet and whatever. <laughs> um, it's easy for them to do that because the games then appear in China. And so you see it on the shirt. I mean, that, that's almost like stealth advertising. Clearly, there's a clearly there's a dysfunction there, right? If China doesn't allow it, these are Chinese companies and they get around it that way. Um, but I, I I wanted to to throw it forward to something you'd said earlier um about women's sport and and the, and the women's game because you know we hear about the growth we hear about sort of models of growth and personally i feel that we're a little bit stuck now in the sense between what what fifa wants what sponsors may want what some top female professionals may want and what i mean is if you look at the last world cup which did phenomenal uh phenomenal numbers in terms of ratings and the last euros as well here in europe there's a world cup coming up we have a situation where there's definitely an audience a big audience for women's international football i I don't think that's that's in question um but then you look at the teams that do well in women's football and it's all the wealthier countries right it's more developed countries uh that have already have the most number of women players and when people talk about having sort of equal pay and increasing the pot that goes to countries to 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 the countries in the World Cup for participation, and obviously more money goes to the teams that win it, some people make the argument that this is just a case of more money going to countries like Germany, like the U.S., uh, like France, that already have long-established uh, pathways for women to become professional footballers. When you know one in four FIFA members, they don't even have a women's football team. Hey, how do you strike that balance between kind of mass participation and having more opportunities for women just to play football, and rewarding elite athletes at the top of their sport? Well, there are so many things in in this in this topic. Um, uh, I raised it. Take it whichever way you want, because I know it's something you've talked about and so on. <laughs> The, the reality of women's football is a reality of that country where they play. Uh, so there is no such a thing as a women's football today because, you know, in, in Latin America and in, in, in Africa, in Asia, it's still treated as, as when it's treated as a second class uh, sport, uh, which it isn't. So I think it's FIFA's role to invest and to get all the places to, to grow uh, so that you can have a sport that is sustainable, that is global, that is inclusive, et cetera, et cetera. So I think on, on that side, I think you know, FIFA needs to do a lot of work to make sure that uh, that, uh, that women's football can get to a point where it is a sustainable uh, sport, because today it isn't. So one of the challenges that I see today is that there is this uh, demand from uh, for equal pay um, at the same time that the sport is not at a stage where it can sustain equal pay. So the only way to close the the gap is taking money from men's football and give money to women's football, right? Which I think some players in this industry can do. So FIFA can do it. FIFA can take, you know, $500 million out of their men's football and put on women's football. It will make a big impact. It will develop a lot. And I think that would be the right thing to do for FIFA. When it comes to broadcasters and to sponsors, it's different because they are looking at, from a commercial standpoint, what this product offers me. 
And then you have situations like that now that FIFA is saying, oh, the European, the big European markets are not paying enough. The big European markets are paying what they think it's worth the event. Uh, and in their minds, the event is not worth what FIFA think it is. So there is this, this mismatch of uh, where the, the women's football is today in terms of quality as a product and, uh, and, and what is the right thing to do in terms of pay. Uh, I, I, get, I, I get very annoyed when people talk about equal pay as a birthright because uh, it's, it's about the quality. Good women's football should be paid sometimes better than bad men's football, right? Because if the sport is a product, if the game is good, you should absolutely pay it. But it's not because it is women's football that should be should be paid uh, accordingly. The gender doesn't define this. The quality of what you're offering should define this. So great football, like the you know the the the, the, the women's Champions League, or the French League, or the uh, or the, the the women's uh, in the, the Premier League side, not the Premier League side, the the women's uh, league. They should be paid very well, much more than what they are paying today. Some other leagues shouldn't. Um, so, uh, from a, from a sponsor standpoint, some of them are investing. As I said before, they are investing because it's the right thing to do, and they are losing money. Uh, we have to see for how long they are going to keep losing money uh, investing as an advertiser, as a uh, because it, today is not paying back yet. However, there is one category of of uh, of people that are making a lot of money in women's football, not the players, not the clubs, not the broadcasters. So investors, if you look at uh, funds, VC funds, buying women's teams in the US, uh, and these people are going to make a lot of money. Selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing. However you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launcher online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million dollar stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify is your no excuses business partner. Sell without needing to code or design. Just bring your best ideas and Shopify will help you open up shop. What I love about Shopify is how no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Because businesses that grow grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash gabjewels, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash G-A-B-J-U-L-S now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash gabjewels. That's really interesting when you talk about investors in, in, in women's now we're talking about women's club football, which I think is kind of a, you know, a different kettle of fish than the international game. Because the international game does, in big events, draw massive audiences. There's only eight NWSL clubs, I think, eight or nine. And I believe three of them are up for sale now, right? We just saw uh, uh, Olympique right? Lyonnais, yeah. who, who owns the, the, the Reign in Seattle, which is one of the more successful, well-supported clubs. They've put it up for sale. They want to divest themselves of that. Um, we see there's another women's league, uh, which has just launched, I think last week, uh, or they're going to start operations next year, but they announced a launch of USL, uh, women's league. And so there's obviously people willing to set up these leagues and putting the money in, but at the same time, I wonder if the, the minimum wage for these leagues to call themselves professional. The minimum wage is very low to the point. It's like fifteen or twenty thousand dollars a year. So, women have to then take side jobs to be able to to, to make a living. Um, I always wonder, especially in the U.S., where it's such a big country, does it make sense to have a national league where you've got teams flying from from Florida or Atlanta to Seattle and Portland? Isn't there, is there a way to have a bigger footprint, maybe more teams? Maybe make it semi-professional, but at the same time, say, have a model perhaps like rugby or cricket, where the big money's in the international game, and the club game serves to kind of increase the footprint, to give as many women as possible 
the opportunity to play high-level competitive football um, or, or soccer, uh, you know, rather than create this idea that we're going to we're going to replicate the men's game, and it's often the men's the, the the European men's game and the model that has existed and worked from because it's been around for a hundred years in Europe, or in the U.S. case. Oh no, we have to NWSL have to cause the copy MLS, which is itself was copying the NFL, no promotion relegation and blah, 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 and all this stuff. I, I, how do you, I know it's a broad theme again, but how do you feel about that? Uh, I think you're touching on something that it's, it is a, it's a big problem. And, and you have, you have to, you have to look at American sports um, from not as a sport, but as a business. And all the decisions that are made here are based on, what, how can I maximize the return on my investment? It's not about how can I develop the sport? How can I? So they play on scarcity. They are going to create a league that is going to have limited access to value to make sure that these assets, these franchises are going to you know, grow in value so that the investors get the maximum return on their bets. So this is, this is how they look at uh, uh, the leagues look at women's sports uh, and and the model works for other sports so it should work for women's football too but that doesn't help that doesn't develop women's uh, 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 women's league in the united states because it is it is it is financially driven it's not development driven so you know it's hard the federation they need to do a lot of work to make sure that you have grassroots and you have you know a lot of people playing luckily for the us they have you know uh, they have uh, uh, laws that force colleges, universities to offer equal um, uh, opportunity for, for boys and girls uh, that are playing for the NCAA. And, and this is the best thing that can that ha- ever happen to the United States because that forced uh, you know, the, the education industry to develop a lot of uh, women's in sport. Uh, but if you just leave to the, to the capitalism, it would be all about, you know, I'm going to buy a franchise in a big city and hope that it appreciates over time. And in 10 years, I'll sell it for you know 50 times what I paid for it. So it is not about it is not about how it developed things. I mean, I I I was I haven't watched it yet, but you know, uh, Angel City, the women's city in the women's team in Los Angeles, um, they have a documentary on on uh, one of the streamers, right? And the team played one season. So how, how can you tell stories about a franchise which is so young? You, you know, it, it, that just shows the, the, the focus on, for me, that is a, a lot more on Hollywood than on the sport itself. Um, and, and I think someone, uh, I know U.S. soccer does this very well. Um, FIFA needs to do more. Uh, CONCACAF needs to do more to invest in development, to use sports to not only as a business, but also to... No, to to have a, a a role in society in the community, etc. I think I think you hit the nail on 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 the head there. I think different actors have to do their their they have to play their own roles, right? So if I'm a venture capitalist and I own a club, I view it as a business. I look for my return. That's fine. That's my job. Uh, if I'm if I'm FIFA or if I'm the USSF. I want to expand the game so that more people have opportunities to play. Because let's face it. You know, the U.S. may be dominant in women's soccer, but the only reason is because it's a very big country with a lot of money. And because, as you said, Title IX, you basically have a national nonprofit massive league where every university in America plays women's soccer. And so women have that opportunity to develop and the best one goes through. That doesn't exist in 95 percent of the world. Nothing comparable. You know, I you're from Brazil. Uh, I, I know in the last. 10, 20 years, Brazilian women or Brazil, a lot of Brazilian clubs have added and have invested in women's football programs. But I'm guessing, I don't want to profile you with your age, but I'm guessing that if you were a girl who wanted to play football in when you were growing up, you either had to play for the boys unless you were really, really lucky, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. It didn't exist. I mean, it was a, a, a poor of all my girlfriends. They, they, they couldn't play. <laughs> And we're talking just about infrastructure, not talk about culture and how uh, uh, how it looks for girls to play in Latin America football. I mean, they are the stereo- their stereotype is not 
is not the best. It wasn't. It was horrible. Today is not great, but no, it's improving. Luckily, um, but the only thing I mean in, in Latin America, in Brazil mostly, the the the, the women's football is growing because of a mandate of you know common ball. Uh, the clubs have to have a women's team, otherwise they don't play the men's competition. So, and that that makes a big uh, difference. I'm just curious, and I think a lot of the listeners will be as well. How do you negotiate one of the contracts without revealing secrets or amounts? What? But is it difficult, for example, to 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 negotiate with FIFA for the World Cup or you know Formula One, all all those big events, the, the Olympics? That you go into as a Coca-Cola, Coca-Cola head of marketing, for example, is it is it about like, oh, I, I give you 20 million, no, we want 50, okay, I give you 30, but I want the trophy in our offices twice a week, or you know, do you go do you go for like little margins? Is, is it like does it feel like a like almost like a tactical football match where you move or like a chess game where you move your your how do you call it? your pawns. your pawns? That's it, and then they do the same, and then in the end everybody's happy and you find an agreement. And, and have you had like some really difficult negotiations and some others where it was actually quite easy because you were on the same page from the beginning? So the, the, it, it depends who has more leverage, right? So if you're going, <laughs> see, if you see, if you sit down with some of these big rights holders, organizations, sporting organizations like FIFA, the IOC, and UEFA, I mean, they there, there is not another World Cup that you can buy. There is not another Champions League you can buy. So it is it is what they are offering. So usually the, the discussions are less focused on the money because now we know we know coming into the discussion we know how much is going to cost. So the price the price won't move. Is they say yeah, that the, the price the price won't move. It's un, okay. it's highly unlikely that prices are going to move. So your work when you're talking to these big organizations is to figure out how can you extract more value from what you're getting, yeah. what you're paying. So if you're going to pay a hundred, let's make sure that you have enough value, you know, rights, access, whatever it is, that justifies the, uh, the, the 100. Because if you're coming in with 50, you don't get the meeting. You know, you don't, you don't, <laughs> right. they, you, you're never at the table to discuss. So if you're at the table to discuss it's because you have the money and then uh, you have to, and, and that's the difference between, you know, when a, when a company does good things or not great things. If you look at just the World Cup or Champions League, there are, you know, I there are brands that do a fantastic work. I mean, you you I love seeing the work of some sponsors, and I have no idea what others are doing. They are paying the same price. The difference is that one of them bought the right things and the other one didn't, mm-hmm. uh, and and that that makes uh, all the difference. So uh, it can it can last um, uh, weeks. Uh, I, I I've been part of negotiations that lasted you know, three years, um, really? but <laughs> but. You know, it's it's a it's a 12, 15 year contract. So, you know, it has to last as long as it, it needs to last. Uh, so uh, it's uh, it's a fun part of the process. On the back of that, because you asked, and, and this might help answer the question, one question that always comes up here, especially here in England, uh Champions League final, Champions League finals, I think it's I mean, we can compare it to the Super Bowl or whatever. I think globally it's probably the biggest club event in 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 the world, yeah. right? And I'm speaking in rough numbers. This year, the finals is, is is in Istanbul. Let's say there's going to be right around sixty five thousand tickets available, something like that. And it's always the same: twenty thousand will go to Manchester City, twenty thousand will go to Inter, some thousands, a few thousand will go to local fans, a few thousand will go to those who bought it at the start of the season by the lottery, and then. About fifteen thousand, so you know, nearly a third of the tickets will go to sponsors, and always here the fans get angry. The um, the tabloid press gets angry. Oh, greedy sponsors, greedy UEFA, ruining for everyone, and it feels greedy to me because you know what? If you have fifty thousand season ticket holders who've been there every year or, or every match, why should only twenty thousand get to go? On the flip side. When you talk to you ask UEFA about this, they say, well, the clubs like to have all the commercial revenue where it comes from the sponsors. Uh, so that's why we do it. What do they do with them? Do they get a return on these tickets? Because there's not that many sponsors. Can you just explain a little bit about the value of these tickets versus other things and why sponsors get so many 
so many tickets uh, to the Champions League final. Okay. Well, the, first, I have to clarify that there there is a, a a bad reputation for the sponsors on this on this topic, which is uh, which is not not fair because the vast majority of the tickets that don't go to to fans they go to what they call the FIFA family or the Olympic family or the UEFA family. Um, and, and sponsors don't get that many. I mean, I, I think sponsors is a, is a fraction of that part. So if you, if you look at where the tickets, these tickets, which are not fan tickets go, they go to, you know, every football association gets ton of tickets. Uh, every player gets a ton of tickets. Uh, you know, the local government gets tickets. So there are, uh, there's a list of uh, 15, 20 organizations that will get a lot of tickets, and which is probably, you know, 80% of what does not go to fans. So what the sponsors will get is, um, if you think about um, the, the FIFA World Cup, I don't think that a FIFA World Cup final or a UEFA final, there will be more than, I know, 3,000, no, maybe 2,000. Uh, guests of sponsors, it's 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 a small number, really, for the size of the of the stadium. I, absolutely, and I I got I got this discussion uh, and uh, this this question, uh, you know, often because it is a misconception that the, that the sponsors are getting a lot of tickets. They're not. No, a great a great a great FIFA contract, a great Olympic, a great UEFA contract will give the will give a sponsor you know five hundred tickets. 400 tickets at the final. It is really hard to the point that a lot of these brands will go to the market and buy extra tickets when they need. Um, and they use it to host guests and partners and management and other things. I don't know if you know Ryan Reynolds and Rob McElhenney. I don't know if you knew about Rexham before they went in. But we find it fascinating here, and there's obviously the documentary as well, in the sense that it feels to me that maybe for the first time in, in football, or certainly it's not a high, high-level club right now, but it felt like they almost own, they, they bought the club almost as a marketing tool in a way. Of course, there's football and it's a community and it's great and they, they're doing really good things on the pitch. However, everything that they thought of before buying Wrexham Football Club was also about how can we market for their own brands as Hollywood actors, for the brands that they already own or are involved, you know, like in, in alcohol, for example, and things like that. It seems to me, maybe you know more, but that for the first time, maybe we got a, a football club ownership and the marketing side of that all in one. Is that the future? You, would you see, could you see more people like that getting involved in that way? Or do you think it's just... Like it's it's one exception that could never be reproduced because it's Ryan Reynolds and and because it might not work the same way. Yeah, so it's hard. It, it's uh, it's like going to uh, this idea of multi club ownership and say we are going to copy what City is doing. <laughs> you, you you can copy, but you're not City. You know you haven't started doing this 15 years ago, or you you, you don't have the people that they have the resource. So, you know it. It's hard to do the first time, and uh, and and City Group did it right, and then uh, uh, Ryan Reynolds and, and Rob McHenley they did it right. They absolutely, I, I mean, I, the idea of buying a club as content for anything else is very unique and it's brilliant, and they have done really well uh, on the commercial side. At the same time, they managed to do really well from a sporting side, which is. <laughs> Which is great. So I think it's one of those rare examples that everybody everybody wins. I mean, the the sponsors win because they have the the the, the visibility on the documentary series. The fans win because the team is promoted. The, the owners win because they make more money. So it's it's a great. But I don't think I don't think you can copy that. Um, I, I I think it would be really hard to copy to the same extent. Yeah. Uh, and you don't have another. Uh, duo of uh, owners like they, uh, you know. Yeah, true. So. There's a term that gets thrown around called called sports washing. Uh, and, you know, we had a World Cup in, in Qatar. You mentioned Manchester City there, Paris Saint-Germain. This gets used a lot when you've got uh, uh, states or, or sovereign funds getting involved in clubs. I never quite understood that it has anything to do with marketing the country in the end, because ultimately, it's brought so much more scrutiny 
to these countries and more negativity. There's more people who who hate, uh, certainly among the legacy teams, who who hate or disrespect Jules, Paris Saint-Germain, mm-hmm. because suddenly they have all this money, or Manchester City because of this, and people go and ask more questions about human rights in those countries and, and so on. It seems to me that it's that's not the reason they're doing it. Maybe they're doing it, maybe it's an ego trip, maybe it's the, it's they're doing it to get more visibility among other business owners and other companies and industries so that they can do deals or, or something like that. So that is it, is that what it is more than you can't actually sports wash. Can you, when these clubs are so big and these issues are so big? Oh, I think it it depends. I think you can, you can sports wash and you can, you can, um, you can change or you can influence perception of countries and regimes because of what you do in sports, but you, you can also get access, which is very important. So if you think, um, if you think Gazprom, Russian oil company, energy company, uh, the money that they spent uh, with the Champions League, with FIFA, and, and it's a lot of visibility. You know? So, but if you look at the investments that Gazprom made in clubs in Germany specifically, where their the, the the pipeline from northern Russia was coming to Europe. Yeah, right. I mean, I mean, they what they are doing is they are buying acceptance. They are they. I'm sponsoring your team in your city, and you are going to accept me as a foreigner entity that is connecting my pipe in your country, and it worked really well for them. Um, now, not anymore, of course, for obvious reasons. Yeah. But you know, it did work very well. Uh, if you think uh, Dubai. The work that Emirates has done in the last 20 years in sports. Now, today, people go to Dubai. They they like Dubai. They live in Dubai. And they didn't know Dubai 20 years ago. And a lot of the work that Dubai has done is because of uh, Emirates in sports. So it, it is it is effective in 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 shaping shaping uh, opinion. Um, when it goes to cases which are more extreme, I mean Saudi Arabia. It's it's very complicated because everything that they have done in, in human rights in Saudi Arabia, uh, so it it is it is complicated. You know, Qatar, I think it's somewhere in between this journey of uh, Dubai uh, and, and and Saudi Arabia. If Saudi Arabia and Dubai are the two extremes of done really well, got results, just started, uh, no results yet. Qatar is somewhere in the middle uh, because they they have hosted events. People talk about Qatar, they know where Qatar is now. And and at the same time, they are making changes to their, I guess, to their law to, to be to be more accepted internationally. So I think if if it if it done right, but the last thing is just we talk about uh, sports washing as a tool for reg- extreme regimes, but every country is doing sports washing. When England hosts the the Olympics, when Brazil hosts the Olympics, or the U.S. hosts the the World Cup, everybody is somehow building a brand that is more acceptable, more interesting than the one they had before. Uh, if they do it right, right. So if you if you mess up with the event, there's another problem. So yeah, sport helps to shape uh, opinions of people. Um, sometimes for the good, sometimes not so much. Because I felt like I learned a lot here. Yeah. And because, you know, sponsors often get blamed for this and that. It's a sponsor issue with, you know, City, Paris Saint-Germain, people see it as that. But we've long wondered about these questions. And it never occurred to me that Coca-Cola, for example, that like the next generation has to be introduced to Coca-Cola, otherwise they'll forget what it is. Yeah, no, no, you're right. But it shows you from a sponsor's point of view as well, the importance of football and why this is the most popular sport in the world and, and the interest and the, uh, what is at stake financially, but also in terms of image and exposure and reputation and fame for all those brands is so important. So thanks again to uh, Ricardo Fort for joining us. Remember, you can check out all the other Gab and Jules meets, yeah. uh, they're right up there. They're sort of slower conversations, hopefully more reasoned conversations, um, which is why I speak in this uh, slightly <laughs> more uh, measured voice. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate is to not search at all. 
Don't search. Match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com gab. Just go to Indeed.com gab right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com gab. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. 